Philippians 1, 3 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of the grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are a couple of expressions that we use among Christians that are expressions of kindness and they're virtually always received as nice things to say. And we really appreciate when other people say these things to us, and they appreciate when we say these things to them. And they're very simple, actually. And they go like this. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for you. And we also often say to each other, I'm praying for you. Now, that I'm praying for you usually is received very well, unless they really need us to do something else and we beg off doing something else by simply saying, well, I'm praying for you, but I'm not willing to help you. But normally, normally we mean it sincerely. I'm praying for you. And I found, interestingly, that even with people who do not share our beliefs, they tend to appreciate these expressions. Even if they don't share our beliefs, they realize that when Christians say these things, we mean well. We mean to be saying, I appreciate you and I want the best for you. So, I thank God for you, and I pray for you. And by the way, Florida Coast Church, I thank God for you, and I pray for you. That's what Paul does here. That's how he begins this letter. We saw the greeting last week. If you weren't here for that, I think it would be helpful to get into the whole uh, letter of Philippians to go back and, and look at that, that uh, lesson from last week because it introduces us to the historical context. But now we get into the letter, and we have this greeting in which Paul does two things. And those are the two things, very simple. I thank God for you, and I pray for you. So let's look at this Thanksgiving, which is in 3 through 8, and then the prayer, which is in verses 9 to 11. Now, notice, first of all, that this prayer, this prayer of thanksgiving is total. It is complete, Notice the repetition here, and actually it's hidden a little bit, but, but the repetition is very, very clear, even in the English translation. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So every time I think about you Philippians, the immediate reaction is to thank God for you. So uh, in all my remembrance of you, and then in verse 4 he says, always, all the time, so always in every prayer of mine. So every time I pray for you, I give thanks for you. Every time I think of you, every time I pray for you, I give thanks for you. And then he says, for you all, for you all, for all of you. 
So he gives thanks every time he remembers them, every time he prays for them, and he gives thanks for all of them. Now, uh, later on, we're going to find that there were some difficult people in the church, as in virtually any church, but he gave thanks here for all of them, even the ones that were having some difficulties at that moment. And then he also says, in, um, so it's always and in every, that sounds a little different, but it's in all prayer. I jumped over that, sorry. So we have all remembrance of you, always in every prayer or all prayer of mine for all of you. So four times he uses this, this all, 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 all. So it was a, a total prayer of thanksgiving for them at all times, in every prayer and for all of them. And then he says, he gave thanks to them with joy, making my prayer with joy at the end of verse 4. Now this is, this is as we've seen, Paul doesn't throw away words. He, he's, he's giving here another preview of coming attractions. We've seen how in the first two verses he gave a preview of coming attractions, and he continues to do that. He's signaling something that's going to be very, very important in this letter, and that is this question of joy. It is many times throughout this letter, some, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 times, joy, joy, joy. And he says, I give thanks in my prayer with joy. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of steal the thunder from later because we're going to be studying joy as we go through the letter. But joy, uh, just, to, just a little bit of an introduction to joy, it, it's one of those things we know what it is, but if you ask us to define it, it's kind of difficult, isn't it? We might come up with some words like happiness uh, that, that try to describe the, the experience of joy. And sometimes you will hear people say, and I've even said things like this, uh, a distinguishing between happiness and joy, whereas happiness depends on our circumstances, but joy is independent of our circumstances. And that, that sounds okay at first, but then I began thinking about how Paul talks about joy in the New Testament and in this letter in particular. And we find that actually joy is not completely disconnected from our circumstances. So it's not independent of what's going on around us. But what we will find is joy has deeper roots than our circumstances. And so if you go through this letter, as we will, so just, just put that sticky note that says joy or rejoice, put that in your mind. So whenever we get to that, so ask, your, ask the question, what's, what's the basis of the joy? What is the, the root of the joy? And sometimes you will find that it is in the circumstances. Paul is rejoicing here, as we will see, because of their partnership in the gospel. He rejoices later on because they renewed their interest in him by sending some missionary support. He rejoices in the next section we're going to see because the gospel was going forth. Things were happening and these were good things. But then he also rejoices in spite of some very adverse and negative circumstances. And so there's a, there's a deeper root there. And he gets to that in chapter 4 where he says rejoice in the Lord, which is independent of the circumstance. And so it's, it's not completely, it's not like Mr. Spock, you know, completely uh, uh, unrelated to or some stoic sort of approach to life where the circumstances don't affect us. Yes, they affect us. But at the same time, there's a bedrock there, so there's something deeper there that we're going to be exploring as we go through this letter. Now, Paul's thanksgiving, as I said, was inspired by their participation. It's the word koinonia, uh, communion, verse 5, prayer with joy, verse 5, because of your partnership 
your communion, your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, uh, the Philippians, if you, if you piece things together uh, in terms of the relationship between Paul and the Philippians, we see this. It's borne out in the, the letters of Paul. It's borne out in 2 Corinthians. It's borne out in this letter. It's borne out in the, the account that we have in Acts of the Apostles that the Philippians were always there. They were always supporting Paul as much as they could in the work of the gospel, and not only supporting Paul, sending him to go do it, but they themselves, the Macedonian churches like Berea and Philippi and Thessalonica, they themselves were also preaching the gospel, and it was getting out from them. So these were partners in the gospel from the very beginning, the first day. And the first day was, was a, a, really, very, a very small beginning, wasn't it? There was a widow woman and there was a jailer. Those were the first two converts in, in the, the, the city of Philippi, and then Paul was, was run out of town. So there were these two families. That was the beginning. But since the, from the beginning, they were partners with Paul in the gospel, and that gave him joy. Now, um, notice, notice what it also gave him in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of those quotables from Philippians. And if you memorize any verses from Philippians, this may be one of those. And it's an excellent verse to memorize, but sometimes we lift it out of context and we apply it mistakenly. Paul had joy because of their partnership in the gospel, but he also had confidence in the fact that what was begun in them, God would complete it. Now, why did he have confidence in these? Because of 10 years of a relationship. They had walked together for 10 years, and he had seen the reality of their faith and their generosity and their participation in the work of the gospel. And so, after 10 years, he could say, I am confident because of what I see in you, I'm confident that God will complete this work until the end, until the day of Christ Jesus, until when Jesus Christ comes again. And you'll notice that he doesn't say that sort of thing to everyone. To the Corinthians, he says, you know, folks, you should test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He says that because of the way they were living their lives. There, there wasn't that abundant evidence in their lives. And, and to the Galatians, he says, you've, you've turned aside from the gospel to follow something that is no gospel at all. And I wonder if I've labored in vain among you. And so you see this confidence that Paul has was because in their lives they were participating faithfully in the work of the gospel. There was evidence there over the long haul. And so we should apply this verse for sure, but we should apply it to those in whom there is evidence of salvation. And that evidence is, is deep and lasting. Now, Paul's thanksgiving was also a result of the mutual love, the mutual love that existed between the Philippians and himself. He says in verse 7, it's right for me. It's right for me to feel this way. What way? Well, thankful, joyful, confident. It's rightful for me to feel thankful, joyful, confident about you all. And he says, because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers. There, there's another Variation of that word koinonia, your you're in your communicants in uh, with me of the grace, 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he says, I, these are very, very tender words, aren't they? Very loving words. He's saying, I hold you in my heart. Later he calls them my joy and my crown. He says, I hold you in my heart. And then he says, quite remarkably, he says, I yearn for you all. I long for you all. Remember, Paul is probably in Rome, and they are in Philippi. They're very far away from each other. And he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he's saying, I love you like Jesus loves you. That's quite a remarkable thing to say, isn't it? And think about that. How did, how did Jesus love his people? Jesus loved his people by giving his life for his people by dying for his people, by rising again for his people. And Paul is saying, I love you with that kind of love. And later on, he will describe that in chapter 2. He says, I'm being poured out. I'm being poured out as a sacrifice. Does that sound familiar? Christ was poured out as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And Paul says, even if I'm being poured out as a sacrifice for the benefit of your faith, I rejoice. So he was loving them with a love that was a, a Christ-like love. It, it looked like Jesus. And he says that here. That's the, that's the kind of love I have for you. And here he describes in somewhat more detail the kind of love they had for him in verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers. You all, once again, all you all are partakers with me of, the translation here says, of grace. Uh, it actually has the definite article of the grace, the grace. And the question is, what is the grace? Last week we saw that grace in general is God's favor towards sinners. So it could be that he's referring to the grace to which he referred in verse 2. That favor towards sinners. You and I, we are both participate, participants in that favor of God towards sinners in Jesus Christ. So it could be that. However, in this context, immediate context, it may well be Paul referring to his ministry. The grace is the ministry that Paul had to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And you will see, if you look up this expression in, in Paul's writings, the grace that was given to me, the grace that was given to me. Paul uses that uh, sometimes, oftentimes, to refer to his own ministry. Uh, chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 2, verse 7, verse 8. So repeatedly, Paul refers to his ministry as the grace that was given to me. Now, why was it a grace given to Paul? Because Paul says, I'm the least. I'm the worst. And, and the fact that God would give me the, the privilege of preaching the gospel to other people and starting churches around the, the Gentile world, that's a grace. That is favor toward a sinner. Let, let's read a couple of those. I think it's, it'd be worth it. Let's see, chapter 3, uh, verse 2, where Paul refers to that. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And then he refers to his ministry to the Gentiles. In verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So in this context, it may well be that he's not referring to grace in general, but he's saying you all, 
you Gentiles, you folks in, in Philippi, you have become participants with me in the grace. What grace? The grace, the privilege of getting to take the gospel to other people. And by, by the way, friends, that, that is a grace. That is, that is a favor that, that God would, would grant to us, to people like us, to give us that, that favor, that privilege of being his spokesman and spokeswomen and taking the gospel to other people. There, there's nothing like that. that. That is a privilege. And that's what I tell people all the time. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a secret. Uh, we don't try to keep it a secret, but, but missionaries, you know, we get to go to other places in the world and, and take the gospel to other places in the world like we got to do for almost three decades. And, and people mistakenly try to admire us and say, oh, I really admire you. That's really great on your part. And I say, no, you, you, don't, you don't understand. You, you don't get it. This is the gift for me. This is my pleasure. This is my privilege. And nobody benefits more than I do by getting to do what God has allowed me to do. It's a gift. It's a privilege. It's one of those things that where you, where you pinch yourself and say, really? God would, God would call me? To do something like that? God would enable me to do something like that? And, and Paul was always pinching himself. And the Philippians were, were begging for the opportunity. They, we see that in 2 Corinthians. They're begging for the opportunity to participate more and more. You see, from the outside, it looks like a burden. From the outside, it looks like a, a toil or a trial. But when you get inside and you understand this grace that is given, you say, this is a gift. This is wonderful. This is great. I love this. This is a, a privilege like no other. And he said, that's why I give thanks for you, because you have participated with me in all of this grace. Now, that's the, that's the thanksgiving, a very effusive thanksgiving on Paul's part. And then he turns to prayer. And that's, that's normal, isn't it? That's normal. If you've ever been in a prayer meeting that's, that's kind of working properly, um, sometimes prayer meetings are, they drag. I've been in a lot of prayer meetings that are, it's hard to stay awake. They're kind of dull. But when a, when a prayer meeting gets going and, and, and it starts to, to get in the zone, if you were, and, and people begin to open up and begin to pray more freely, you find this back and forth between two basic impulses. And that is to say, thank you, Lord. And Lord, we ask you to do this or that. And so it's a natural flow from thanksgiving to petition, from petition to thanksgiving and back again. And so here he, he moves seamlessly from, from thanksgiving into petition, into prayer in verse 9. And here we have a typical sort of Paul structure. Paul, Paul when, he, when he writes and when he, when he prays, he often has a cascade of ideas. This idea A leads to idea B, which leads to idea C, and then C leads to idea D. And it just is a cascade of ideas, one connected to the other. And we see how this, how this prayer is. And this prayer is moving along, and it's, it's going from one uh, idea to another, from one goal to another. And notice how this builds. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more that your love may abound more and more. That's, that's the basic prayer. So what's the petition here? It's that your love would abound more and more. Now, this is remarkable, isn't it? Because um, this is Philippi. This is the Philippian church. So as far as we can tell, you know, let's say 
top 10 loving churches in Paul's ministry, Philippi would have to be one, maybe two. I mean, it's up there in terms of loving churches. But even to this most loving of churches, what is Paul's prayer? I pray that your love would abound more and more. He says the same thing to the Thessalonians, who would also be in the, in the top uh, two or three of loving churches. He says, I pray that your love would abound more and more. There's a lesson here for us, isn't there? We never say, okay, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Check. Love your neighbor as yourself. Check. Now, now what else? What else is there to do? If we understand love, we will never exhaust those two commands to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so he prays for them more and more. And then he describes that love. He says, this is love which is in accordance with knowledge and discernment. Now that's important to say in any age, but particularly now, um, there is an expression that's circulating in our world, and it, it goes like this. Love is love. And you see that in like a poster in front of some a sign in front of some houses, and it goes with a number of other slogans today. And as it stands, well, of course, yes, that's true, right? It's a tautology. Love is love. But the idea is there that love is free, completely free, and it has no content to it. It's how I want to love, whom I want to love. I am sovereign in my definition of love, and I determine what that looks like, and don't tell me that it should look any differently. That's, that's what's behind that expression. But even, and this is the point here, it's not so much to, to criticize that expression, but even those who, who use this slogan recognize that love has content, because even those will have limits. They, they, there will be relationships which they will say, no, that's not right. You, you can't do that. You can do this, but you can't do that. That's improper. And so everyone recognizes that, that love has, has to have rails on which to run. If everyone is a sovereign decider of what love is, then that will be chaotic. So everyone recognizes that there have to be some rails, and as Christians... When we look at this prayer, we realize that what he's asking and praying is that our love would, accord, would be in accordance with biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge. What does love look like? Well, we have a convenient definition. Uh, we have a convenient definition in 1 Corinthians 13, and it has content, doesn't it? We have definitions of marriage. We have definitions of parental love. We have definitions of, of the love of children for their parents. You see, there's content given there. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not boast. It does not get angry. It doesn't keep an account of wrongs. This is content. This is the description of love. And let each man have his wife. Let each wife have her husband and so on. And children, obey your parents because this is right in the Lord, you see, Parents, raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It has content. It's described. It is not a free-for-all. And so here the, the prayer is that we would grow more and more in our love, but that love has to be in, a, in, a, in, in accordance with knowledge and discernment, or otherwise it will go off the rails, and it will no longer be love. But there's a goal here. The goal is in verse 10, so that, so that, you may approve what is excellent. 
so that you may approve what is excellent, so that you may be able to know what is right and that you may be able to distinguish between what is good and what is best so that you will be able to say, this is the best. This is the way. This is excellent. And then from there, there's another so that. You see how this chain is going, this cascade of ideas, that you would grow more and more in your love, that that love would be in accordance with knowledge and discernment, that that knowledge and discernment would permit you to be able to approve what is excellent, that approving what is excellent would enable you to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. For the day of Christ. So here Paul has the long game in view. But how do you get ready for the long game? It's by how you live your life now. That you'd be able to, to love, know, discern, approve, so that those activities that you're engaged in now would prepare you to be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. And then he describes in verse 11 what it looks like to be what it looks like to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and it's the, it's the activity now filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ now the fruit of righteousness is kind of an ambiguous expression what i think it means here is the fruit that is righteousness that is righteous conduct because here he's talking about living that you would be filled with righteous conduct. But notice that righteous conduct is not a solo production. It is fruit. And fruit doesn't come from without. It has to come from within. And fruit, it's described here, comes through Jesus Christ. We will find something in Philippians, especially when we get to chapter 2, and he talks to us about our salvation, and he says how we should approach our salvation we will find that there is this combination, this combination that philosophers struggle about, but simple believers understand perfectly well. And that is this combination between God's work in us and our participation in that work. And we see that here. He's saying these righteous, this righteous behavior in your life, this is the goal, this is the end game for you now. This is what you should be working on now. And where does it come from? It's a gift. It comes from Jesus Christ. He's the one who works it. It is his work in you. We see, we saw last week, and we see throughout this letter and throughout the New Testament, righteousness is a gift of right standing before God. The, 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 uh, the theological word is justification, to be declared righteous or just before God. That's a once for all happening in the life of the believer. We are declared to be righteous before God. We receive as a gift, as a grace, Christ's righteousness given to us. And so we are, therefore, juridically, we are legally, we are permanently declared to be righteous before God. And then there is the righteousness which is living. And that's what Paul's getting at here. The righteous life that, that reflects that righteous standing before God. We saw that last week. You are saints. You are holy ones. And so live as what? Saints, holy ones, you are righteous before God, and so live out that righteousness in your life. And then we get to the, the, the final end game, if you will. And he says, the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. And here we have the, the final goal. You might think the final goal would be for us to stand on that day pure and blameless before Jesus. But no, there's something even greater than that. And that's the glory and praise 
of God. So, so notice that, that how this cascade, did you see how that works? I pray for you to grow more and more in love. Oh, what kind of love? Love that is knowledgeable and discerning. Why knowledge and discernment? So that you can approve what is excellent. Why approve what is excellent? So that you can be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Well, what does it mean to be pure and blameless on the day of Christ? Well, it means to be full of the fruit of righteousness that Jesus Christ works in his people. And what's the whole point of everything, of the whole package? What's the final game? What's the final goal of all of this? It's the glory and praise of God. And so that's always the answer, by the way. When you ask the question, what's the purpose of whatever? Well, if you want to get to the cut to the chase and get to the final purpose of everything, in Scripture, it's this, the glory and praise of God. Now, um, in this process of growth that we're being called to here, this was not just for the Philippians, but for us as well. In this process of growth, I want you to notice that there are three days. This will simplify your life. There are three days that you need to be concerned about, and really only three days. And Paul mentions those three days here. The first day is the first day. He said, you were your participants in the gospel from the first day. And then he says, until now. And so now we have a second day. And the second day is what? This day, today. And then he mentions the third day. And the third day is, he mentions twice, the day of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about those three days. Because those are the, the only three days you need to worry about in 2000, what are we, 22. Or any time. So, these three days. The first day, the day of coming to Christ. The day of faith in Christ. And, and this is the day of coming to faith in Jesus Christ and, and receiving salvation as a gift from Him. So let me just stop and ask, do you have a first day? Do you have a first day in your life? Uh, and I'm not asking for a date. I don't have a date. I sort of have a general time frame. But, but has there been a time in your life when you've come to faith in Jesus Christ? See, that's, you need to start first with the first day. If you don't have a first day, today and the day of Jesus Christ, we, we can't get to those. You need to have a, a first day of trusting in Jesus Christ and receiving salvation as a gift purchased by him through his death and resurrection. That's the first thing. And if you have a first day, then today. You see, that first day determines how you live today. And that's what Paul is calling them and us to here, or God is calling them and us. If you have that first day, you say, yes, I am a saint. I am a holy one. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I have been made righteous by this gift of God's grace. That is who I am. I am a part of his church. Then that's a call to us to live today, to live in accordance with love and knowledge and what is excellent and, and righteousness, purity and blamelessness. And you see, if we do that, if we have a first day that affects how we live today, then we'll be ready for the third day, that final day, which is the day of Jesus Christ. If you believed in Jesus Christ that first day, and if you are living a life of love and righteousness on this day, and you do that every this day, every today, then by God's grace, you will be ready for that final day in which you will be Fulfilling your purpose for existing, you will be for the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Our God, I pray that 
we would all have that first day. For some, it was many decades ago. For others, it may be today. But I pray that we would all have that first day of beginning with Jesus, of believing in Jesus, and receiving the grace of salvation, which is a free gift from you. And having had that first day by your grace, may we live today, this day, in love that is according to knowledge, so that we can approve what is excellent, so that we can be pure and blameless, so that we can be filled with the fruit of righteousness in preparation for that final day. And on that final day, may we all be for your praise and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.